Isaiah chapter 41. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. And let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not yet been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! And so the craftsman encourages the smelter. And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. He fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fathers, we approach your word this morning. I praise you for what you've done. And I thank you for opening up a way for us to be with you, to walk in your presence, to interact with you in this most amazing of all relationships. And I pray, Father, that wherever people are coming from, Each one of us in the barn this morning, would you meet us where we are and show us yourself? I pray, Father, we will simply hear your words from a loving God to his people. In Jesus' name, amen. I read the news, as many of you do, and it's so disconcerting. I think in the last month alone I've read at least five different articles of husbands who have killed their wives and children and then themselves. That alone just, it shocks me. Not that it happens, I know know there's sin, I know there's evil, I know there's wickedness in the world, but the the amount of it, the amount of, of pain and anguish and slander and brutality that, that is just coming across this 24-7 and it, it can be so depressing. And I think about the state of the world. I read an article this morning about uh, a scientist talking about concerns with the sun and solar flares and some of the worst solar storms that we've seen in recent history. And back in 1989, some of the solar storms that actually knocked out a power grid in Canada and the threat to planet Earth. And I'm reading this article this morning saying to myself, why are we not more afraid of the sun? I mean, seriously, we wake up in the morning, and if it's not a sunny day, we consider it a good day if it's sunny. Well, gang, when you look up there, what we're looking at is a huge ball of gaseous flame that could go off at any minute. Why doesn't that freak us out? Instead, we go, oh, it's a beautiful sunrise. There's death in them, our sun. Anyway, we live in a dangerous world. We really do, a frightening world. Parents, we fear letting our kids get too far out of our sight. We fear death and disease and illness. We worry about what other people are going to do. 
We all have concerns in our own lives, and we look ahead to the future, and it's not looking good. Now, if you look back to 1947, a group of atomic scientists called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, they developed a way to graphically represent how close this world was to disaster. In fact, to global nuclear holocaust. They called it the Doomsday Clock. Have you heard of that? The Doomsday Clock is just a graphic representation. It's an analog clock face on it. And they set the hands on the clock to show how close we are to midnight. Midnight being nuclear holocaust for the globe. Now, they initially set the hands at 11.53, seven minutes. Now, this was in 1947. And every year they update this, this doomsday clock. Initially, seven minutes to midnight. The closest we've ever been was three minutes to midnight. Now, some of you may recall this, the escalation of the U.S. and Soviet arms race back in the late or early 1980s. The eve of 1984, they ticked that clock to three minutes to midnight. 1984. George Orwell would have been so excited. I don't even remember what I was doing on New Year's Eve 1983. I had graduated from high school and Cheryl and I were freshmen in college and so I am sure we were at a party or something completely oblivious that we were three minutes away. from. In the last 65 years, we have never, according to these scientists, never been further away than 17 minutes. And currently, today, as of uh, 2012, they set it at five minutes to midnight. We live in a dangerous world. Terrorism, threats, evil, wickedness on the rise by all human accounts. It's a dangerous world. My question to you this morning is how do you deal with that personally? How do you deal with the threat of just living on planet Earth in these last days? Because it is going from bad to worse. Leslie sent out an email Uh, I don't know how many of you got it. I think she sent it out to the teachers and helpers in children's ministry. And in it, she had a link on the email to watch. It's about a 20-minute teaching by a guy named Sky Jathani. And uh, being sick and not having a whole lot to do but watch old Star Trek episodes, I thought, well, I'll watch this. And I sat there in bed with my computer, and I just sat watching this. Sky Jathani, he, he, uh, he edits... Leadership Journal, which is a subsidiary of uh, Christianity Today. He's, he's a, an international speaker. He's a writer. I don't know much else about him, so I'm not you know, saying this is a guy to listen to. But he was dead on in this teaching he did. A short teaching, and, and if you can look it up, Sky Jathani is his name, and the title of it is Church, Why the Mass Exit. He said the following, All human religion is predicated on one thing. We live in a dangerous world. It's man's response to danger in the world. He goes on to say that as we recognize these dangers, it leads to fear. And when we feel fear in our lives, we respond by seeking some measure of control. And that's kind of how it works. And many of you know, so much religion is so much control. Religion is a controlling thing. This may sound a little odd coming from a pastor, but it's absolutely true. And what happens is that we get on a cycle where it starts with danger, we recognize the danger, we become fearful. And in that fearfulness, and note this in your personal life, don't you seek some measure of control to ameliorate your fear? Here's the problem. As you seek that control, the more control, the more you sense danger. 
And you're right back to danger again. So you get afraid. Governmental control. The more the government clamps down. Isn't it funny? Back when President Obama first came into office, one of the ways that he rode into office was we need accountability on Wall Street. Right? One of the problems we have in our country right now is massive over-regulation that's killing jobs. And what started as a good idea, let's be accountable, let's hold people accountable for their behavior, now ends up over-regulation. See what happened? Danger! Fear, control. And now, there's danger again. And around and around we go. And that is what Sky says, Sky Jathani says, that's where religion comes in. Religion is control. Religion is control in the sense of danger and fear. We've got to have some control. If I can show up at my church, if I can live by a certain set of rules, if I can handle a certain amount of morality, then I've got some control in my life. And that's religion. So why the mass exit from church? 20-somethings that used to leave church, oftentimes, you know, you'd you'd want to sow the wild oats, you'd get out from under mom and dad, and you'd go off, and you wouldn't go to church for a few years, and be off doing other things, trying out college, trying out the workforce, skipping out on church. But typically in our country's history, around the late 20s, early 30s, as children come into the scene, people start coming back to church. That's how it's been. Not anymore. Now... There's just mass exit. 20-somethings leaving churches and not coming back at all. Because they sense, I believe, some danger in the church. Jathani believes a large part of the problem lies with the church's response, and that's more control. Let's create memberships and make people sign up to be a member of the church and give them a certain list of do's and don'ts to follow to be part of this church so that we have some control. So we don't have people going out the back door. So we're not losing people. And if you sit in a church like that for long, you start to feel controlled, and it makes you feel like there's some danger there. Why are they so tight-fisted? Why are they holding on to me so tight? I don't like this danger. Warning, Will Robinson, get out. (laughs) Fear comes along, and then we just want more control. It's a religious problem. And truly, religion is about Control. Now, again, does that sound funny coming from a pastor? It, it probably should. I sat talking to a, to a young friend of mine um, a little while ago, and I think surprised him because he's, he's, he's like kind of on the verge right now of, of what to do with, with God and, and church and everything else. And he sat there in my office and I think expected me to say, You've got to start going to church, man. You've got to start reading your Bible. You've got to start doing these certain things. He was asking those kinds of questions. What do I have to do here? And I said, I would encourage you to start by just talking to Jesus. He's like, well, what? Just, just be with Him. What do you mean? Just talk to Him. Well, I can talk to Him? Yeah. Well, okay, but, but it's not right. And he has enough church background, he was saying. But, but I've heard that you know it's not right to ask for signs. <laughs> You've heard that, haven't you? Jesus said a wicked and perverse or adulterous generation looks for a sign. And so churches have taken that and said, you should never ask God to confirm His word to you. Never ask God for a sign because that's evil and wicked. No, it's not. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees after a time where He had done tons of signs. And they still wouldn't believe. So finally Jesus says to them, I'm going to give you just one more. The sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the fish and spit out onto the ground. I'm going to be three days in the belly of the earth and I'm going to rise again. There's your sign. Here's your sign. (laughs) And Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's all you're going to get. Well, why, Jesus? Because you're not going to believe anything else. But to ask God 
to walk in relationship with you? Um, to confirm that He's real? Is there any problem with that? Hey, Lord, I'm having a rough day. Could you just... I just... I, I need some reassurance here. Can you give me some reassurance? This church wouldn't be here if I wasn't asking for that. Religious control or relationship. You've heard it a million times out of my mouth, probably in other places. It is not about religion. It is about relationship. Well, so why go to church? Well, it can help. You know, fellowshipping with other believers, man, it helps my relationship with Jesus. Well, why, why study the Bible? Not so that you can become knowledgeable in the Word of God, but so that you can become more in relationship with God. Another question I was asked recently, why does God give us the whole Bible? Why not just give it to us in a nutshell? <laughs> That's a good question. I'll answer it in a few minutes. Back to what Sky Jathani said. He said, the more people are controlled, the more they sense danger leading to fear, and around we go. And he's on to something very true and very real there. And I just need to say this to you one more time. My friends, the Bridge Christian Fellowship or any church cannot be your sense of security in this world. Do not make this church your safe place. But but that's where I go, where I feel like everything's going to be okay. Okay, what happens when something goes bad in the bridge? What happens when the pastor whacks out and does something strange, you know? Rips off a bank. (laughs) Front page of the news, Pastor Crawford. Thief on the run. You know, the feds are after him. They think he's in Canada. What do you do then? This is not an admission of guilt. (laughs) Never been convicted. (laughs) What happens when you put faith in an institution and the institution crumbles? Now you're back out there in danger zone. Fear. And so now you're going to try and find control in something else. Don't put it in a church. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. A relationship with Him. That's your security. And I've already told you the end of the sermon, so let's stand up and say no. Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, God does something here that is remarkable. He invites us into the court of reason. Listen to this first verse. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. Let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. A couple things to note. Coastlands here is the word in the Hebrew, islands. So he's talking directly to us this morning. (laughs) Islands, listen up. Islands, listen to me in silence. To the local Judeans, to hear Isaiah use this word in the Hebrew, they would immediately think of the atolls and the isles out in the Mediterranean. These podunk, tiny little, small town places out in the Mediterranean Sea, to the west of them, oh, he's calling to the islands. Well, that's interesting, because normally God's calling to Judea, to Judah, to the people of Israel, but... This is an invitation that goes out beyond us. Coastlands, islands. It's the Hebrew word. I've shared this before, I believe. It's the word e. E. It's a tiny little Hebrew word. And it literally means not. As in, not the mainland. (laughs) As in, not much to it. You know, we live on Whidbey, not. Or some of you are from Fidalgo, not. Not much. Tiny place. Now, I want to make a quick correction. Um, the last Wednesday that we were here together, I surmised that the islands could refer to those, those coastlands, those great coastal cities like San Francisco or New York City or some of the big cities and financial uh, capitals of the world. I need to retract that. Back in verse 15 of chapter 40. 
We're told, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are, are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands, same word, e, coastlands, islands. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. I realize what Isaiah is saying here is that from the mightiest of nations to the tiniest, remotest of islands, God's hand is in everything. From great to small, from huge to minuscule, God's hand is in everything, and He's involved in everything. And so in verse 40, chapter 41, He says, Islands, listen to me in silence. Let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Welcome to the court of reason. Three things God says right here in the first verse. Notice the order. The, the word judgment down at the end of the verse, mishpat. It means a forum. A tribunal for making informed decisions. A place to come together for discussion. To come to a resolution. And notice the order. First he says, listen. Listen in silence. What the Lord would say to you and me, people of the islands, what He would say straight out is, start by hearing my word. Number one, listen to my word. Number two, then speak. Bring your questions, your queries, your confusions, your comments. He says, let them come forward and let them speak. God is not afraid of your questions. He's not worried about you probing just far enough that you discover there's some faultiness to His logic or His his way of doing things. God's not worried about that. Reason with me. Bring your questions. Feel free to ask, to challenge, to query. Bring your stuff. Finally, He says... Let us come together for judgment. This is shocking, but what he's saying, the purpose gang is not for God to judge man. This is for man to judge God. The court of God's reason is for man to come and to judge God. To hear His Word, to ask our questions, and to come to a reasoned response. A reasoned response. And why does the Lord subpoena the islands? Because what he is about to say in this court of reason, as he begins to present his case to you, to me, he wants to make sure not a single person misses this. It's not just a call to Judah, the people of God. It's not just a call to the great cities or or nations. It's a call to every possible person in every corner of the earth. Come on in, pay attention, the few, the many, the small, the great, the 99, the one, everybody. Come into my court of reason, the Lord says, and let's talk about this. Remember, that's how he started the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1.18, he said, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. God is never unreasonable. He never asks you to believe something that's just, that's just too much. It's just too far-fetched. Well, Rick, what about the resurrection? Listen, by the time you get to the resurrection, God has laid out so much before that to prove that He is legitimate. Resurrection is easy to believe in. That's part of the reason He gave us the whole book, by the way. We were talking uh, just the other day, we were at the Hoffman's, there's Mike, uh, just last night, we were talking about um, the Lutheran Church and about going to confirmation and about learning things like the Nicene Creed. And, and I was kind of arguing against it. You know, Cheryl and Mike were both saying, well, the Nicene Creed's a good thing. It's, it's everything we believe. And, and Cheryl actually called it up on her cell phone and read it out. And at the end of it, I said, okay, well, what about this? What about Israel? Nicene Creed doesn't say a thing about Israel. What do we believe about that? 
But what about how the Holy Spirit works and functions in our life? The Nicene Creed recognizes the Holy Spirit, but doesn't really say how we interact with God in relationship. You see, God didn't give us a creed. He gave us His entire Word. Why? Well, think about it. By the time you've gotten through the whole Bible, how much time have you just spent with Jesus? That's the point. It's not about learning the verses. It's about walking with Him. It's about being in relationship. I look at Isaiah. Here's how much we've covered in, in eight years. Okay, This side. That's eight years of study. You know what's wonderful about that? It's not, hey, we're all halfway through Isaiah. We're, we're going through. No. We have spent eight years walking with Jesus. That's cool. That's marvelous. That's relationship. God says, come on, weigh the evidence. I'm going to lay it out for you. He's about to, by the way. He's about to lay out an amazing prophecy if I ever get there. Weigh the evidence. Weigh the evidence. But you've got to be willing to look at the evidence. If you're not even willing to look at the evidence, if you don't want to be reasonable, then forget it. And there's too much unreasonableness even among Christians. There's a lot of unreasonable Christian faith out there. Did you know that? Why do you believe that? Because that's how I was raised. Unreasonable. Why do you believe that? Well, because that's what Pastor Rick said last week. Unreasonable. I've shared before, I hate that. I hate when word gets back to me that someone said, well, that's, that's what Pastor Rick said. Really? Ask Cheryl, you don't want to base your faith on what Pastor Rick said. You want to put your faith in the Word of God and in Jesus Christ. Weigh the evidence. Don't, don't have a faith that is based on hearsay. Well, my friends, no. Well, but my family, no. What do you believe about Jesus? How do you know Him? What is your experience with Him? That's what He's calling you to. Titus 3.9 says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. And Jesus says, I tell you that every idle word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Don't live in idle faith. Know what you believe. And don't just know what you believe so you have a head of, of church information. Know what you believe because you believe in a person. In Jesus Christ. So God convenes this court of reason not to judge the nations or the islands, not yet, but to invite them to weigh and judge all the evidence that He is about to bring. He starts with a question. Verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east? The answer is kind of obvious. It's a capital who? It's the Lord. Whom He calls in righteousness to His feet. He delivers up nations before Him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with His sword. As the wind-driven chaff with His bow, He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way He had not been traversing with His feet. Okay. So the question is, who has called this one from the east? And the other question is, who is this one from the east? First of all, the one from the east can't be Assyria. Because verse 3 tells us this one comes in pursuit along ways he has not yet traveled. Assyria had already trampled the known world. We're done with Assyria. Hallelujah. We've talked a lot about Assyria in the first half of Isaiah. We're done. Serious history now. At this point, now we're looking at something different. Someone else. Someone from the east. Who is this one from the east? Don't say Jesus too quickly. Because the prophecy here is a little closer to the time of Isaiah than 700 to 750 years when Jesus came. 
God gives us a name. He names this one coming from the east. We've talked about him before. Skip over to Isaiah 44, verse 28. Now I want you to hang with me for a second as we walk through part of this. We're going to come back to this whole relationship with Jesus toward the end. But as with any relationship before, you don't just jump into the marriage, right? Get to know the person. So let's get to know God a little more in this. And here is the person from the east. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, and to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Just biblically speaking, you understand what loosing the loins of kings means, right? Think laxative, and you're, you're probably right about there. Okay? To loose the loins. Yeah, okay. I will go before you. I'm just trying to you know, keep it theological. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. And for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. This one from the east is Cyrus. And it's a remarkable prophecy because Isaiah speaks the name of Cyrus, writes it in his scroll 150 years before Cyrus comes on the scene. Why does God do that? He's showing, he's bringing the evidence into the court of reason. Cyrus, as God's anointed, does prefigure Messiah. In other words, he is kind of a picture of of the coming of Messiah. The ultimate anointed one, Jesus, who's the anointed one of God. Jesus, who would come from the east. But 150 years after Isaiah, Cyrus the Persian is the one who would take down Babylon. Cyrus the Persian is the one who would restore the Jews to their land, exactly as it says in verse 28 of Isaiah 44. He will perform all my desires, and he declares of Jerusalem she will be built, and of your temple your foundation will be laid. Cyrus said, Jews, you can go back. You can start to rebuild. And it was his voice. Look at the very end of Second Chronicles, and Cyrus is named. He's the one who did it. He sent them back, just as God said would happen. Now, Cyrus the Persian is the historical fulfillment of this prophecy, and it's so compelling... The only counter-argument that the liberal attorneys in the court of reason can give is this. Question the authenticity of the whole book of Isaiah. Because there's no other way. This, if this, if this can't be true. <laughs> it just can't be possible. Because for this to be true would mean that Isaiah named a guy 150 years before he was even born. That's not possible. It's one thing for the Bible to make vague predictions and forecasts. You know, religion does that. But to actually name names, now you're getting into the impossible. Yeah, now you're getting into the realm of God. Because, as Jesus says, all things are possible with God. And this is the whole point. And yet, many believers included, gang, struggle with the certainty of prophecy. Why? Why is it so hard to believe that God names names? I I believe and know God knew my name before I was named. He knows your name. He knew you before you were born. 
He knew what your name was going to be. He knew what you were going to look like. He knew what was in store for you in your life before you ever came along. Why is it so hard to believe? Why do people come along and as we've talked about saying, well, this must be Deutero Isaiah, a later Isaiah who happened after and he looked back and historically wrote this and then tucked it in with Isaiah to try and prove this book. See, the Lord says this, Isaiah 41, verse 21. Look at that verse. Isaiah 41, 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account. And your work amounts to nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. This is God's challenge to idolatry in the world. God's challenge to every other controlling religion on the face of the earth. God says, okay, prove it. I will. I'll prove myself. You prove yourselves if if you're gods, if there are other gods out there. And then he says in verse 25 again of Cyrus, I have aroused one from the north and he has come. From the rising of the sun he will call on my name. Now, Now wait a minute. There's a contradiction here, Pastor. Because I notice that in verse 2, it says, Who has aroused one from the east? And now in verse 25, it says, I have aroused one from the north. And then he says, From the rising of the sun. Well, the sun doesn't rise in the north. See, your Bible is full of contradictions, and, and it's just not accurate. Try, instead of contradiction, try precision. Simple question for you. Where did Cyrus the Persian come from? <laughs> you guys got it! Excellent! First hour. First hour, they're like, Babylon? I had to explain. I said, you know what? It's, it's like asking, what's the color of George Washington's white horse? Okay. Cyrus the Persian is from Persia. Where was Persia? To the north of Israel. Northeast. Well, where did Cyrus the Persian conquer from? from the east of Israel and Babylon. Both are correct. In fact, this just shows more precision in the prophecy. He would come from the north, from Persia, but he would conquer from the east, from where the sun rises, from Babylon. God proves his word in the precision of his prophecy. Now remember, we're in the court of reason. He's laying this stuff out. He's saying, I just want you to consider these things. I'm going to show you something, and 150 years later it's going to happen precisely as I said it would. And here's the guy's name. Now think about that. Who can do something like that? And so we sit there, we think about it, and he continues, verse 4. Who has performed and accomplished, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. And this is the first time we hear it. God says, I am the first and the last. The Hebrew word for first, Rishon, means the beginning, the primary. It all started with me, it all comes from me, He claims. And then He says the last, Aharon in the Hebrew, the utmost, the furthermost, the very end. He says it three times in the book of Isaiah, I am the first and the last. Here in verse 4, He says it again in chapter 44, verse 6. He says it finally in chapter 48, verse 12. And we won't hear that definition again until Jesus says it. In Revelation 21, verse 6, It is done, I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son, says Jesus. I am the first and the last. Cyrus, God's anointed, does prefigure Jesus as a coming one, as one called anointed by God. But he is not like Jesus because Jesus, though being a man, was also fully God. Jesus is the greater than Cyrus, himself being God the Lord. Now, the Lord doesn't stop here. First he prenames Cyrus. And then he explains a little bit about where Cyrus is going to come from, how this is going to work. He explains more as we go further into the 40s of Isaiah. But then, he does something wonderful. He says, and and by the way, when Cyrus comes, here's how the world is going to react. And he gives us two examples of how the world is going to respond to Cyrus. They will do two completely unreasonable things. Number one, they will increase production of false idols. Read on. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter. And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. And God is tongue-in-cheek even when he's saying this. There's a note of sarcasm here. He's talking about the building of false idols, of pagan idols. And he says, And they fasten it with nails so that it will not totter. And to make sure we build this idol so it can stand up. Wow, that's something worth putting your faith in. Something that is possibly going to totter. God describes this as one of the reactions of people with the onslaught of Cyrus. With the coming of Cyrus the Persian, conqueror of Babylon, as they, they begin to spread out and conquer even more you know, in the name of, of Persia. The people responded stupidly. Instead of hearing this prophecy and attributing it to God and saying, wow, okay, God called this. He's right, fall on our faces before them. No, instead what the nations of the world did was they mass-produced more idols. They thought our idols are displeased with us. We need more. And it's exactly what people do today as the doomsday clock ticks closer to midnight. The reaction of so many is to double down on the very things that cannot save them. We'll just do more of the same. We'll continue down the same road, but we'll do it more fiercely. We'll do it with a little more passion and commitment. Think about this. What do you turn to when things are not looking good? Idols of gold? Investments of silver? The same old failed philosophies and ideologies of the past. What do you fasten on to when your life is getting dangerous? When things are looking uncomfortable? What do you cling to that gives you a false sense of control? For the ancient world, it was idolatry. And we can control it. We just need more gods. And then we'll feel a little bit safer, a little more in control. You know what John said? John said, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now here's the application of that. Hang on. John said, little children, guard yourselves from idols. 1 John chapter 5, verse 22. Why would he say that? John is writing to Christians. That would be like me concluding the service this morning, just saying, hey, have a great day and guard yourselves from idols. And you'd walk out going, well, that was a little odd. Well, 
Where's that coming from? John, what are you saying? John understood something. He understood his brothers and sisters in Christ lived in the Greco-Roman world that was permeated with idolatry. So permeated that you could not interact with society without interacting in some way, shape, or form with idolatry, idol worship. You go to a restaurant to buy some food. You don't know if the meat there had been sacrificed to idols. Probably had been. You go to a store selling clothing embroidered with symbols and icons of idols. Do you wear that as a Christian? We got to Israel and... Cheryl and I were so excited because I think I shared with you we went to the Nike outlet and got all kinds of cool Nike clothes with a swoosh and everything. Woohoo! You know, went to Israel with our new Nike clothes. And on the first day, our guy Dayton said, "Oh, Nike, goddess of speed." I'm like it's just a swoosh. It's this idolatrous thing. Okay, Rick. So now you're going to start bashing on logos, right? No, I'm not. That's not the point. John's concern and your concern and my concern as well is with moral compromise. It wasn't that John was afraid the church was going to go into idolatry. It was that John was saying, hey, guard yourselves. Be aware of the world in which you live. Be aware of how easy it is to compromise your morals. Guard yourselves from idols. Avoid moral compromise with the world. Now, some would hear me say that and say, "Uh, uh, uh, Pastor, That's the typical warning from the church. You throw out that moral compromise thing, and it's your way of controlling people, you know. Sign up for the Preserve Marriage Act. Make sure you sign this piece of paper. If you don't, you are a loser. (laughs) And that's not what it's about at all, gang. The danger of moral compromise, and we need to understand this, is far more insidious than how it affects your church attendance or your personal righteousness. Moral compromise, gang, has an impact on your relationship with Jesus. That's the issue. If I'm compromising in different ways, well, I'll let James tell you. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's the issue. Again, it's not about being all righteous and holy looking. It is about what furthers my relationship with Jesus Christ. What draws me closer to Him and what pulls me away from Him. And please hear me because I, I've talked about several different areas over the, over the years and, and months, you know, the weeks that we, we talk about certain moral issues that come up. And I've brought things up and people disagree with me on stuff and that's fine. It's not that I want everybody at the bridge to be a teetotaler when I talk about drinking. When we talk about gambling, and that's coming up. (laughs) What does the Bible have to say about that? Why should I care? I should care because it impacts my relationship with Jesus. How is it affecting the way I relate to Him and with Him? How does idolatry affect your relationship with God? You need to go out, and and I've been watching the Lakers play, and they didn't have such a good night Friday night. Hopefully they'll play a little better today. I'm a big Lakers fan. But it'd be like me showing up here with a Kobe shirt. And you could ask me, well, Rick, really? Is that that the model you're shooting for? You know, Kobe Bryant? On the court, yes. Off the court, not so much. Idolatry. It's setting up anything that can come between us and God. The natural man turns to symbols and icons and images without reason. 
And that's the whole point. We're still in the court of reason. And it is unreasonable to turn to all of these failed things in our lives when things are not going well. The nations did something else. Not only did they increase their idolatry as Cyrus came on the scene, but verse 6 tells us something else. Note this, it's interesting. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what we would say to do in in our church relationships? Hey, Shelby, hang in there. Be strong in the Lord. Encourage your neighbor. Encourage your friend. That's what we should do, right? So why why is that a problem here? It's not a good thing if the words are empty. And these are empty words. Be strong. We're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. It'll all work out. It can only get better. You know, when people say that, I just want to hit them. It's the last time any of you encouraged me. It's like this, <laughs> like the scene in the Avengers. Have you, how many people have seen the Avengers? Okay. If you haven't seen it, it's a thrill ride. It's a lot of fun. It's one of the funniest and, and fastest-paced movies I've seen in a while. Saw it yesterday. Great scene. I'm going to blow this for you, but it's hilarious. you got to look for this. The Incredible Hulk, right? And, <laughs> and uh, Thor are battling this creature, and they bring this bad boy down. It's great. They land side by side on the ground. Boom! You know, and Hulk's there, <gasps> you know, breathing heavy and angry, and Thor's there going, right, you know, it's great. And Hulk, obviously, is still amped up, and he just goes, <laughs> Thor goes flying off the screen, you know. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Oh, oh yeah, that's how I feel when someone says, oh, Rick, just hang in there, it's going to get better. <laughs> What if it doesn't? Hey, you're a believer in Jesus. Hang in there. It's going to get better. So what happens for the believer in Jesus when they're told that and it gets worse? Oh, wow. (laughs) It's the wrong approach, gang. It's empty words. False idols and empty words. That's how the people responded. Listen to what Paul says. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And I've told you before, gang, following Jesus does not guarantee an easy life. It doesn't guarantee the pursuit of happiness. It does guarantee a deep joy, a deep security, a sense of fearlessness. But life could get worse. It's part of the deal. Let's not water it down and be wishy-washy with empty words, false idols, empty words. That's the world's response when God offers reason. But to encourage someone with full words, words to hold on to Jesus. I know your life's bad right now. Hang on to Jesus. I'm not guaranteeing it's going to get better. Hang on to Jesus. Go to your Father. Talk to your Father. Lean into His Spirit. That's what He offers. And He will see you through. And that's not empty talk. With regards to false idols, we have a true God. With regards to empty words, we have the whole truth. And so the Lord presents this in the court of reason. And then He says something, gang, after laying all this out, This should just absolutely stun us. Verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, 
Jacob whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, I have called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's what I offer you instead of the idols of the world, instead of the empty talk of the world. I offer you something marvelous. An encouraging, reassuring, comforting promise. But wait a minute. Who's God talking to here? Israel. Oh. So it's not our promise. When we first started the bridge, I noticed right away that that Les quoted a lot of Scripture. Perhaps you've noticed that as well. And he would often quote one of his favorite source books in Scripture is Isaiah. And great promises out of Isaiah would just roll off of Les's lips. And every now and then I hear him say something and I go, you know, but, but that's a promise to Israel. That's for Israel. And I, I still, and this not having to do with Les, but I still to this day encourage you when it comes to the promises of Scripture to make sure that the promise is not specific to somebody else. Know the context. Understand who's being talked to, what's being shared. You know, there are people who open the Bible like rolling the dice or having your palm read or, or, or playing Magic 8-Ball. You know, what should I do today? <laughs> you know, it's the same kind of mentality. Know who the promises are for. That being said, Les was right. Because these promises given to Israel by God are for you. And they are for me. It doesn't take it away from Israel. But the promise comes down to us. Let me show you how. It's just exciting. Verse 8, he says, Abraham, my friend. Now he calls Israel three things here in verse 8. My servant, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, and descendant of Abraham, my friend. The word friend, Ahab in the Hebrew, means my beloved, my loved one. James defines it for us even more clearly. James takes it, and he uses the Greek word philos. Philadelphia, brotherly love, friendship love. James 2.23, the scripture was fulfilled, which says... Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now understand something here. Abraham was called the friend of God not just because God called him a friend but because God treated him as a friend. Because, and no, this is all pre-law. This is pre-Israel. Abraham coming before. Yes, he's the father through whom Israel would come. But before the law was given, Abraham walked in a friendship. This freaks me out, but it's true. A friendship with God. Don't believe me. Read Genesis 12 through 14, 15, 16, 17. Read through there and look at how God interacts with Abraham. How Abraham interacts with God. It's a couple of friends walking together. They eat together. They talk together. God says... You know, I'm about to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Should I do this without letting my friend Abraham know? See, God reveals to Abraham what's on his heart. That's what friends do. So they had this this friendship relationship. 
And you might say, well, that's great, but God's still talking to Israel and not me, right? I I can't be a friend of God like Abraham was. Well, let me ask you this. Why did God summon even the remotest islands into this courtroom? Why did He invite you and me to be part of this discussion today? Why does He call us all? Because He wants us to understand something, gang. The friendship that He has with Abraham, He offers to you. And He offers it to me as well. Let me just read this to you. Romans chapter 4. Paul says this in verse 13. The promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be an heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, pre-law. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, listen, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you believe in God the way Abraham did, which is a simple, I believe Him. If you walk in the faith of Abraham, you have the opportunity to have friendship with God. In Romans 11, Paul calls it being grafted in. And this is critical to understand in this relationship issue. We're back to relationship now. To set aside religion and to walk in true relationship with Jesus Christ is not only to accept His agape love, but to accept His philos love. Regardless of what we do, He loves us. That's the agape love. But He also says, I love you like a friend. I want the companionship and the love that you have as friends. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Abraham sacrificed to God in response to this friendship God was offering. Jesus sacrificed Himself to offer that friendship to you and to me. Jesus went on to say, You are My friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends for all the things that I have heard from My Father I have made known to you. And here we sit in the court of reason. And I myself in stunned silence. Because God offers friendship. And that friendship does something greater than any other relationship I have in my life, my wonderful wife included. The friendship that I have with Jesus is primary for this reason. Look at verse 4. God says, Who has performed it and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. Did you hear it? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last. I am with the last. It's a Hebrew preposition, the word eth, and it's a marker of relationship. It means to be together with. Friendship with God promises what I call withness. The withness of Jesus. Not the witness. In fact, I'll put it this way. You can't witness for Jesus unless you have the witness of Jesus. Yeah. Being with Him. 
walking with Him in a love, friendship, relationship that is real and tangible, as real as any relationship you have on earth. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? So that we might understand what it means to enter into a friendship with God. Because friendship with God sounds so difficult, so distant. The the great, massive Creator, how can I be friends? And so He said, well, let me put on flesh and make it a little easier for you. Abraham was a friend of God. Jesus says, I've called you my friends. And I want to be in a relationship where we are with each other. God says, I am with the last. This is what He promises. This is what the islands and the nations do not understand about Jesus. He desires to be with you. It's what Lisa Adelot said last night. We're talking again about some other things. And Lisa said, you know, when I walked in the door of the barn, it was the first time that I learned that when I walk out the door, He goes with me. She said, I had always assumed you'd go to God's house and meet Him there. He, you know... You go to church and God's there and you, how's it going God? And you worship Him and do that and then you leave and He waits until the next service. <laughs> but I realize I can walk out the door with Him. That's the point. That's what this is all about. Withness. Jesus says, I am with you always. Even to the very end of the age. With the last. Praise God. And so it's not about the control of church. It is about the promise of being with Jesus. His pledge to be with us always. Now listen, I love the church. I love Bible study. I believe in moral absolutes. I think we should be pursuing righteousness. I look forward to the kingdom. I even look forward to the coming of Jesus, but not to the exclusion of being with Him right now. I am with Him now. And He wants to be with us. And when I get that, and here's the whole point this morning, when I get that, this world is no longer a dangerous place for me. There is nothing in this world that I should fear when I am with Jesus. Ironside put it this way, he said, to know God and to depend on Him is to be invincible. No one can really injure a person whose confidence is in the Lord, for He will cause all that seems evil to work for the good of those who put their trust in Him. Amen. What do we have to fear? Nothing at all. Jesus, thank You for offering friendship to us. And I pray, Father, that every one of us will take this so personally that we get to be friends of God like Abraham. Friends through Jesus. I thank You, Jesus, You called us into friendship first, that You took the first step. You you opened Yourself up. You made Yourself vulnerable. You shared all things with us. I thank You, Father, that You have never been unreasonable. You have taken the time of all history to bring us to this point. Thank You for being our friend. In Jesus' name, Amen.